do in our uh, three or so hours together is really just answer this one question, or try to answer it. Why is faith formation so difficult? So obviously I'm making the presumption that it is. Maybe you got it figured out. And if you do, um, go get a beer. Uh, you don't need to be here. But we'll try to answer this question of why it's actually so difficult. And to maybe risk being redundant here and showing you another video clip, I want to use at least this woman as kind of a, a case study for us. She, uh, you're going to see a piece from the news. She wrote a book called, um, I think it's called Relax, It's Just God. So this is a mother, atheist mother, who now has her own children asking her questions about God. So she wrote a book in response. My question as you watch this, and I'll have you turn to some people and, and debrief it in a minute, is uh, what's going on here? What does she really believe? I want to have complete compassion for her. I think this is a legitimate way for her to live her life. But how do we get to this point? So here's, here's uh, the interview. I think it's interesting. We'll talk about it a little bit. Portions of this presentation have been removed for copyright purposes. She says it's not what you believe that matters, but what you do. So you're able to separate these two things. And you can see how that could play out, say, in your youth group, where a parent, Bible study is about what you believe. And you know what? That's not important about what you do. And what you do when you play basketball, what you do when you study for a test, allows you to be maybe more successful or have a, a, a better future in, in their imagination. But, you know, it's great to add on Bible study. And if, if that's who you are, I mean, it's great that the, your young people will believe something. But belief and doing and believing aren't necessarily related. Now, I just want us to hold that up because all the things you guys have said have been really insightful. But that we could live in a world where belief and action are not connected is a very unique time. Now, I'm not so sure it's even ever true. I think we always believe certain things that guide our actions, even if they're more unthought and kind of in our background. But the fact that we kind of have a vision where we can even tell our children, honey, it's not what you believe that matters, it's what you do that matters. Wow, how do we get to this kind of world? This is a very different operation for the Western world to have that kind of conception than it had before. And so that's the story I want to tell you. But to get into that and to get this kind of more into ministry, I want to just add two more layers of a story to you. I met a woman a few years ago now, maybe two years ago, in Jacksonville, Florida. I was down there doing a presentation on youth ministry or something. And this is kind of vocational hazard, as many of you have. Whenever you do some kind of presentation on youth ministry or young adult ministry, what happens is after the presentation, everybody wants to come up to you and talk to you about their kids you know so you're always now you're like doing therapy with their own children so this w w wonderful woman elaine comes up um she's you know as you can see maybe early 50s mid 50s and she comes up and she just wanted to tell me about her kids so she said you know i have two kids and neither of them go to church and she said you know it's really painful with our oldest about 25 26 something like that now she said you know he never wanted to go to church from day one, we could never get him to go to church. We could never get him to participate in church. He fought us all the way. She says, I remember at seven years old trying to pray for him at night and me tucking him in and praying for him and him saying, Mommy, don't pray for me. What's the difference between you praying for me and praying to some magical bunny in the sky? It doesn't mean anything. She's like, oh my gosh, this is a seven-year-old saying this. But she said she felt so much guilt. Like she was really involved in her church. She, uh, her faith really mattered to her. And she started to have these big questions like, how can I even be a good parent if this is how my seven-year-old is responding. And it is really interesting that even some of us in this room maybe can have kind of existential connections to that, that even some of us with our own children, like I have a 14-year-old, and will he seek God and seek Christ and him crucified? I 
don't know. This kid can be a pretty hardcore atheist right now. Um, and it's just, you, you feel this incredible anxiety in yourself. And you ask this big question, like, how can a kid who grows up in church, whose mom is an ordained pastor, his dad's a theologian, this become an option to him? And we can even feel that guilt. My friend Ralph Jacobson tells a story about his own daughter, who's now in college, but when she was like three or four, he was giving her a snack before putting her down for a nap. And she's having her snack, and she starts saying to him in her kind of four-year-old little voice, she says, Daddy, I don't like Jesus. I don't like Jesus. I don't like him. And Ralph said he goes into an absolute existential crisis. Like, oh, my gosh. I'm an ordained pastor. I teach Old Testament. Here's my four-year-old daughter, four years old. She's denying the faith. What, what are we going to do? Do I have to go to a different church? What's going on? And then he realizes that she's pointing. And he turns around and notices she's pointing at a box of Cheez-Its. <laughs> I don't like Jesus. I don't like him. But it's really fascinating that his imagination just leaps to she's going to become an atheist. This is a very different kind of cultural context that we're living in, is that those of us who are even deeply devoted to our faith have no guarantee, let alone pass on faith to teenagers in our ministry, let alone can pass it along to our own children. So Elaine's telling me this, and she said, you know, that, would, that was really tough with our son, but that would, have been, that, that would have really been painful if it wasn't for our daughter, Marissa. So Marissa was the exact opposite, her younger daughter, Marissa. She loved going to church. Like when she was little, she'd jump up and down and go to church. She, when she got into the youth ministry, she was like, you know, the youth ministry star, went to every mission trip, coffee once a week with her youth pastor. She was, it was, she was all about it. So that felt better because my husband and I were really involved in the church, and this felt good. So except after her sophomore year of college, she came home after a semester abroad studying, I don't know, economics and globalized world or something. And she was home, and Elaine said to Marissa, hey, we go with me to church tomorrow. And Marissa just said kind of matter-of-factly, no, I don't do that anymore. What do you mean you don't do that anymore? She said, again, matter of factly, like, well, I just don't believe that anymore. I don't think you have to, and she said, I don't think you even have to go to church to really believe in God. She said, plus, look at my roommates. So my roommates are some of the most ethical people I know. They march for justice. They're, uh, they do all sorts of echo, echo justice stuff, and they've never been to church a day in your life. I don't think you need to be a good person to believe in God. And Elaine said when Marissa said that, it was like a cork shot out of her own body. And she started to realize that she was really disappointed with her church too. And she couldn't deny that this was true. So she kind of whispered to me and she said, this is the first time I've been back to a church event. She said, I guess if my two kids are nuns, then I'm a done. About a week later, I got a phone call from a group of denominational professionals. This is not a picture of denominational professionals. <laughs> this is a Google image search. I guess these people want to sell you insurance, but just go with me. We'll let this represent denominational officials. These denominational officials uh, called me. They wanted me to speak at their event. And um, in an age like ours where budgets are in decline and you're going to use some money to have an event, you really want to make sure your speaker doesn't screw it up. So you have to do like hour-long phone calls with the planning team to make sure that everything's going to work out. They're the worst. Um, so they called me. And they wanted to talk about this. And we started talking about what they were hoping to get out of their event. And then all the adjectives started flying. All the words. Listen, they said, we really need to focus our people on doing faith formation because moral therapeutic deism is everywhere. You know that. The nuns, 
the rise of the nuns is everywhere. And then all the adjectives started flying. Like if, we're gonna, if our denomination is going to have any future, um, we really need to create robust faith in, in, in uh, people. We really need to create vibrant faith. We need to create strong faith. We need to create super rad faith. All the adjectives started flying in front of faith. And I really started to think, like, why, why the adjectives? And we all have this kind of sense of it when we're talking even to each other. We want to throw adjectives in front of faith. And I started to wonder, why would we do that? Why does faith need some kind of qualifying adjective? Um, and then I started to wonder if actually the way Marissa and her mom and the way these religious professionals were thinking about faith were really in very two very different ways. So this is how I want you to think about this. And the story I want to tell you, um, and I hope this isn't too obscure, but as these two people are thinking about faith in two different ways, I want you to think of three different, call them components of faith formation, or three different kind of, I don't know, planets that, that kind of work together. And so to have something like faith formation, you have to have a sense of, obviously, belief. I want it to be broader than just kind of commitment to some propositions or some kind of list, a bullet point list, but some kind of belief in, in an encounter, participation with the divine active being, something very important like that. But you also have to have some kind of form of expressions, like what you do. And then there has to be those expressions and those, that even sense of belief has to be done in some kind of conditions, in some kind of environment. All right, does that make a little bit of sense? All right, so you have to have these kind of three dynamics. So think about it like this. I met a pastor after another speaking engagement who came up to me in this really beautiful, really sad moment of vulnerability. And he said, hey, listen, I've been a, a pastor of this church for 15 years. And he says, most days I wake up and I have no idea what I'm doing. He says, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And he said this in this really kind of sad, vulnerable way. And then as soon as he said it, it, it had this kind of sense to me of someone who was like lost in the house they grew up in. Like it felt so familiar and yet he felt lost in it. And then he would, he, the, the confidence would come back and say, well, actually, I know exactly what I'm doing. I think I'm a, I think I'm a good, faithful pastor. Like I run a good meeting. I actually preach a pretty decent sermon. Like when it came to the day-to-day -day things, when it came to the expressions of being a pastor, preaching, leading a meeting, he could do it pretty well. But when it came to actually helping his people inside of the conditions of the modern life they were living, actually encounter the living presence of God, he had no idea what he was doing. So for instance, think about it this way. We know that the very conditions and the expressions inside the conditions have changed. And David Brooks uses this analogy in one of his books. You know you're in a different world where if you're in a cafe down on Nassau Street and a pregnant woman starts smoking at one table and at another table someone says, God damn it, I mean, this is just, it's so goddamn stupid that actually the reaction will be, and people will be morally outraged with the woman smoking than the person who just cursed. Now, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I would get why. I, I personally would be absolutely nervous of a pregnant woman with smoking. But it's a very different imagination when no one cares that the person just said, 
God damn it, that's so stupid. But everyone would freak the hell out if someone, if a woman was smoking. Elizabeth Johnson, the feminist theologian in one of her books, and I think she's quoting Rahner here, she says, you know, we live in a very different cultural context if in the New York Times or the Washington Post, the app, in the app an article just came out that said, theologians in the Vatican or wherever have gathered and they have discovered after reading ancient manuscripts that there are not three persons to the Trinity, but there are four persons to the Trinity. You know you are living in a completely different world where that would barely make the news summary of the news that night. It might make the end of it, but it would not make the news summary. Where if you were at a different time, in a different cultural context, buildings would go on fire. People would be running out. People would not know if they could stay married, how they would make sense of this. How do you raise children if this is true? For most of us, like, oh, that's interesting. That's weird. So I think what actually happens in modernity, and the story I want to tell you, is that what modernity does is it pulls these things apart. It pulls the expressions and the conditions apart. So Wendy can actually only say, it's not what you believe that matters, it's what you do that matters, when the conditions and expressions and beliefs start to pull apart. And that you can actually find a plausible way to live with these things actually split apart. Where I think this becomes really important for us is that I think they can almost be pulled almost apart. But when we say faith, my, my interpretation is when we said faith to Marissa and her mom, they were really wondering how inside the conditions where belief is an absolute option, could I possibly go to church? Or could I possibly believe this? But when you talk to the religious professionals, which I would include us in this, and we say faith, we often are thinking things like, well, how can we get young people to stay? How can we get them to read their Bibles? How can we get this to matter? So we become really concerned about how they will express this. And, but I think for most people, and even most our young people, they're wondering, inside the conditions of this kind of world, how do I believe this at all? And these things can become pulled, pulled apart that we actually are saying two very different things to each other. All right, does that make any, a little bit of sense? It should feel a little bit obscure. But now let me tell you the story about how this happens, how this gets pulled apart. And to do that, I want to do a little genealogy work. And I don't know if you have any experience with, with genealogy work. Like genealogy is kind of all the rage culturally. Like you can go to, what is it, Ancestry.com, Ancestry, Ancestry.com, and you can pay a lot of money to figure out your genealogy, um, which is just weird that we don't know these stories. I mean, that's a whole other kind of conversation that we need to pay $99.95 on a website to figure out who we are or the history of who we are. But the genealogy work, or I don't know, where you probably always do genealogy work is if you ever have a physical you ever gone to have a physical lately? At least my insurance company, the first thing you have to do when you have a physical is it's like an hour appointment, but the first half an hour is just filling out paperwork. And it's not like just insurance paperwork. It's like a checklist of all the things that you go through, your grandparents and your parents, and you're checking out like who had liver disease, who had high blood pressure. Seriously, I'm still... I'm still, sh I, I'm still like uh, wounded from this. And the last physical I had, it went down my dad's side. And then it said, Father... Uh, was a bedwetter, yes or no? And I, and I sat there and looked at that question for a while and thought, how in the hell would I know if my dad was a bedwetter? <laughs> like, what kind of relationship did they think I have with my dad? 
Anyhow, so the point of genealogy work is that there's some sense that we are who we are because of what's happened in the past. Obviously. So there's been a lot of work in kind of philosophy thinking about how did we get to this kind of world? How do we get the kind of world where there's a Wendy who can say it's not what you do that matters, it's not what you believe that matters, it's what you do? Or how do we get to a world where Marissa and Elaine can just decide, I'm done. This doesn't matter. Or we're a bunch of religious professionals just like, we, how can we get them to come? I mean, how can we get them to actually ex express this? So I want us to do some of that genealogy work. Of how, did we, how did we get here? To do that, I want to draw from the Canadian um, uh, McGill philosopher, Charles Taylor. And I do tell all my students as well as uh, other pastors I talk to that he's written this book. Uh, this is him looking really pensive. Uh, but at, you see behind him it says Templeton Prize. He was one of, uh, every year the Templeton Foundation was just down in, in Philadelphia, gives the Templeton Prize to some thinker, some scholar, some, some activist, which is a million dollar prize that they get. And in 2007, uh, Charles Taylor won it for this book called A Secular Age. Now, I would recommend this book highly. I tell people all the time that I think it's the first philosophy book written in the 21st century that will still be read in the 22nd century. So I think you should read it. However, I, do, I need to warn you, it is, it, if you need to kill your office mate, this is the book to use. Like, it's heavy, less violent. It'll keep your door open on a, on a windy day. So it's a very, very thick book. It's about 750 pages. But what will make you vomit in your mouth a little bit is he only wants to answer in 750 pages one question. Just one question. And this is the one question. Why if, he's talking about the West, he's talking about what sometimes he refers to as the leftovers of Latin Christendom. So those who are kind of come out of the Western uh, Christian movement, those in uh, Europe and what he calls the North Atlantic axis, like Canada and North America, a little bit of Mexico. But he's mainly talking about uh, those of us in the West. And he's saying there's an interesting, I want to tell a story, 750 page story on the West. Why, if you rewind, if you just rewind 500 years in the West, why, if you were to walk around in 1500, say, could you almost find no one in any Western village, in any Western society, who didn't believe in God? It'd be nearly impossible. And if you asked them and they didn't, they would lie. Why was it nearly impossible to find anyone who didn't believe in God? And relatively speaking, in a short 500 years, the whole thing has flipped. Now you go down to Manhattan, it's much easier to find someone who doesn't believe in God than someone who does. So he's just going to take a mere 750 pages to tell us and answer that one question. And I want to try to tease that out uh, for you just a little bit. So to do that and to do any genealogy work, you have to time travel. So we're going to do a little time travel. And you guys know what this is, right? Come on. Um, some of you young people, don't make me feel old and I have to tell you about Back to the Future. Um, so we're going to time travel a little bit, and this is where you're going to see my um, Photoshop skills have hit their limit. So we're going to, I'm going to do this by, uh, we're going to take Marissa and her mom first through uh, what we'll call, we'll, we're going to look at a couple different, what I call triads, different movements to try to tell this story. We'll take Marissa through one, we'll take the religious professionals through one, and then we'll, the last one I'll share my own uh, two days from now, and we'll get kind of really theological and think, think about how this works. So we'll start with taking Marissa and her mom. Here's where my Photoshop skills and If you have a card, you can leave it at the, at the desk. I may need your help. But the first one, place I want to take uh, Marissa and her mom, put, her, put them in the DeLorean, and take them through what Taylor calls the ages, these three movements. Touches a little bit about what we talked about yesterday. So if we were to take them and go back, we'll just go back 500, 600, 700 years, that we would enter into a, uh, an age that uh, Taylor calls the ancient regime. 
the best way to think about this is this is the age of kings and queens, of royalty. Now, what's really important for our story here is in the ancient regime, it is nearly, if not completely, impossible to not believe in God. Everything is fused. Belief and life are fused. Conditions and expressions are essentially one and the same. You cannot walk around Paris in the 15th century, in the 14th century, in the 13th century, and not understand yourself as Parisian and Catholic as the same thing. You can't, under, you can't really understand yourself as living your life on the street in Paris that you're living and not participating um, in maybe the Eucharist or saying the prayers. Like these things are all interconnected. There's no way for you to understand your identity of who you are outside of your religious practice. So the big takeaway for us here is faith formation. First of all, no one would talk about faith formation really. There's no reason to talk about it. The whole society formed faith, and for all intents and purposes, it was essentially easy. If you were going to be French, if you were going to be English, um, you lived this out. There was no way to think of yourself as French without thinking of yourself as a practicing, acting Catholic. You wouldn't even think of yourself really as Catholic. You would just think of yourself as participating in the true church, um, that these things were all infused. If you want to find an atheist back here, you can actually go to um, uh, Venice, and you can find the statue. And this statue is a guy, I don't know if you know who this is. This is a guy by the name of Paulus Sarpi. You know who Paulus Sarpi is? Paulus Sarpi was at the um, Council of Trent. But Paulus Sarpi is known, was known in his time and since. Paulus Sarpi was known. So he's about a contemporary with Galileo. So this is, this is um, uh, 17th, early 17th century. Is that Paulus Sarpi was known as the only atheist of his time. The only unbeliever of his time. And so if you were the only unbeliever in the ancient regime, you got a statue. That's pretty cool. Um, now just imagine how if we had statues for every atheist, we wouldn't even be able to drive. Um, but so the point again is that you you become a real huge outlier if you you don't believe in, in this time. So you need a couple things like we were talking a little bit about yesterday. In the ancient in this ancient regime, there are a couple dynamics that keep this thing going and that make faith formation. Um, happen so easily. Your, your faith life and your identity so ingra- ingrained. And the first is that, like we said yesterday, that you live in a, an enchanted age. You live in, in an age of demons and devils, um, of, of deep forms of vulnerability. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, a few years ago, I was teaching confirmation in my little Presbyterian church, and we had uh, three high school kids in it. Uh, and I was the worst confirmation teacher ever because they each graduated a year after each other. So three years in, and I had run my confirmation class to zero, so I'm terrible. Um, but we had one, and our practice was that when a kid was going up for confirmation, other churches, of course, do this, that they would stand before the congregation and kind of give their faith statement, talk about what this meant, what it would mean to live out their faith. So the third kid to go was this beautiful kid, wonderful kid named Ben. And Ben got up to share with the congregation what this meant for him. We've been together three years, reading the Bible together, talking about the Christian tradition. And Ben got up, great kid, smart kid, got up and said, for the whole congregation, said, well, you know, it was a great experience. Confirmation was really great for me. But I guess what I'm taking away from this today is that, you know, whatever works for you works. And, you know, the Bible's great, but the Bible's also really weird and probably bad, and done a lot of bad stuff. And Jesus is good, but you don't need Jesus. Just whatever works for you works. And now I'm in the back pew, and I'm slowly doing this, sliding under the pew. And now I'm in the middle of a vocational existential crisis because I'm thinking, like, I 
literally fly around the world and tell people how to do this. And this is what this beautiful boy is saying. And he just, you know, yeah, it just doesn't matter. So I'm sitting back there and I start to play this mental game with myself that uh, I had heard a comedian do this stand-up bit. And he said that this comedian said that he plays this game with himself when he's bored. It's called, of course not, but maybe. He's like, I know it's inappropriate and I know I shouldn't do it, but this is what I do. He's like, you know, so I think peanut allergies. Like, you know, of course, of course. The game goes like this, of course. Every, every stipulation should be made that anyone who has a peanut allergy is protected. Of course, of course we should do that. But, and he says, I let the the bad angel speak, but maybe, maybe if a peanut's supposed to kill you, you're supposed to die. No, 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 of course not, of course not, of course not. He says, but it always is a second round, and I think, um, no, 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 of course not, of course not, of course not, of course, of course, my, my nephew has this, my nephew has this, of course, no, there should be no peanuts on planes, no peanuts in any school, of course, of course, but maybe if we did this for two weeks, we'd be done with the problem. No, 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 of course not. <laughs> so I'm sliding down the pew as beautiful Ben is sharing this, and, and I start playing, of course, of course not, but maybe with myself. And I'm thinking, of course, of course, the way we should proclaim the gospel to particularly high school boys is God's grace and mercy that God is always welcoming, of course, of course, that's biblical. That's beautiful. But maybe, maybe if you don't tell 17-year-old boys they're going to burn in hell forever, they don't listen to a word you say. <laughs> in the ancient regime, the world was very different. People were very vulnerable. You needed the church to protect you. You were incredibly frightened. As a matter of fact, at least in, uh, at certain times in, in, medieval, um, in medieval England, it was church stipulation that you had to take the Eucharist two times a year, and most people took it exactly two times a year. And they took it exactly two times a year because they were scared crapless of it. I mean, you can imagine, it would be similar today, is that if one of you stood up and said, hey, I just want to let everyone know that tomorrow I have to have my appendix out. And, if, and then if your response was, I'm just super excited. Like, this is going to be really fun. I mean, I love anesthesia, and they're going to cut me open. It's just really thrilling to have something taken out of your body and then sewed back up. We would all think you were nuts. But you would do it, even if you had. You'd probably stand up and say, I'm really frightened. I don't know. I haven't had anesthesia in a long time. I don't know how I'm going to react to it. I'm really afraid. And if someone was ignorant enough to say, well, why are you doing it? You'd say, well, I have to, because if I don't, um, it could be worse. So I'm, I'm risking this because situations could be worse. Essentially, in, in certain times in medieval Europe, that's how people thought about the Eucharist. They were sinful. They were vulnerable to take this holy thing into their body. It could rip them apart, its holy force. But it's better than damnation and hell forever. So you find the nerve to do it twice a year. But you're not doing it three times a year. If your doctor says you don't have to have the toe surgery, you, 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 you wait until it's worse. And that's just kind of the imagination people had in this enchanted realm. So in our church, we, give, we, do, we do communion in a circle, and you pass it to each other, and you say, the body of Christ broken for you. I mean, we're a small little church, so we do this. And my son is 14, a lovely kid, lovely. And the 14 has been a lot better than 13, because 13, I thought I was going to murder him. I really did think I was going to murder him. And I can still use your prayer. Um, but one, we were at church one day, and he's, you know, his, mom, he's, his mom's the pastor, and so he just hates everything about it. And so we're taking communion, and his mom is also gluten-free. 
which means that every, any, everything that is gluten-free and whoever is gluten-free is the lamest person who ever existed. So we're taking the holy sacrament and the basket of bread comes to me and I turn to this beautiful 14-year-old boy who I love and want to murder and <laughs> I say to him, Owen, this is the body of Christ. It is broken for you. And he whispers to me, is that bread gluten-free? <laughs> <laughs> and I want to lie, but I just took communion. And so I say, yeah, it is. He does this. <laughs> he freaking left. And it took everything inside me not to run the boy down and beat him in front of the whole congregation for the good, for the, good of the Lord. But just think... <laughs> Just think of that huge transition from like, I'm going to take the host. The host is Jesus Christ. What's going to happen to me? To a 14-year-old boy being gluten-free. I'm not into it. That's a huge, huge transition. Now, as we say these things, I don't want us to, I want us to remember two things. First of all, I don't want us to be nostalgic for this. Because I don't want to live this way. I don't want my daughter, who's 11, and puberty starting to come on. And we had a 15-minute issue before I left because she's in, a, she's in a, a math group she doesn't like being in and they won't let her name it. And then she wants to talk to us about it for 15 minutes and it doesn't go anywhere. So we move on and then she cries because she's not feeling supported. She's just not supported. She were just not supporting her. And this went on for 45 minutes about how her parents aren't supporting her. And what I'm very thankful about is never inside of me did I think, the devil is in the house. <laughs> I thought puberty. I thought hormones. She's getting ready uh, to have her first menstrual cycle. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what I think. So I don't think demons and devils. I'm happy to live in that world. So I want us to see we've lost some things that make things more difficult but not be too nostalgic. Also, as we see, I want us to always remember we're not, ever, we're not ever as modern as we think we are. And just... Uh, Think about how much horror movies make a lot of money. That people, we like to bracket off our experiences of enchantment, but we still engage them. I'm super into the Netflix show right now, The OA. Does anyone watch The OA? Don't tell me anything. I'm only on season two, part three. Um, but I mean, that's all sorts of enchantment going on and ways of thinking about it. So we're never, we're never quite as modern as we think we are. However, most people in your church, churches who work at office buildings or whatever, they don't get promoted for saying, hey boss, I think I know how we can get our sales up. We just need to get everyone praying and I'm gonna make a sacrifice in the corner and then I think, I think our stock will go up by 3%. Like, you know, that doesn't work. We kind of disenchanted ourselves at that level. So the first thing is that you have to have an enchanted age and well, do you guys want to watch another video clip or am I boring you with video clips? All right, we, got, we, have, we have time. So to illustrate this, let me show you a clip from The Crown. And, uh, you know, the Crown Netflix show. This is a pretty good example of this because this is uh, Elizabeth, uh, her, her, cor- her uh, where she's getting, what is it called? Her uh, coronation. Thank you. Gosh. Uh, so, so the, and it's, what, 1950s. So you're bringing together these very ancient, ancient regime practices with a modern age. And this will be the first time they'll televise it. But I want, what I want you to particularly listen to is her uncle. And remember her uncle, who was supposed to be the king, 
gave up uh, the throne, almost lost the whole thing because he wanted to marry an American divorcee. And, uh, and then her, so her father be- became a king. He can't even be in England while this is happening. He's in Paris, but he's watching, watching it on TV. And at least the way they've set up the show, he ends up with this party of viewing parties with, he almost becomes the play-by-play kind of sports commentator of what's going on. But listen to this kind of balancing of the enchanted and the disenchanted here um, through this ritual and this practice. So about, about five minutes. Portions of this presentation have been removed for copyright purposes. All right, so you see the enchantment there pretty clearly, right? Um, especially his line at the end when a, the good American in the room says, well, that was crazy. Uh, by contrary, you know, absolutely not. It's not, it's not crazy. Why, why would you want transparency when you can have magic? Why would you want prose when you can have poetry? Um, so this deep kind of sense of enchantment, uh, I think, plays in. And this is something that we obviously have lost. Second piece of this, we'll go a little quicker here, um, is that uh, time is completely different in the ancient regime. And this is really hard even for us to get our imagination around. Now, but we do really think about time in this kind of linear way. So we have the crucifixion, say, in around 33 AD or so. And then things just kind of keep happening. Um, you know, we have uh, fourth century in the, the council of Nicaea, and then we have other kings who come about, and then we get to the Protestant Reformation, and then we get to America, and then we get to the moon landing, and then we get to the creation of Netflix, and then we get to (laughs) just some regular day in July 2015, and then we get to just last Friday, Good Friday 2019. This is just how we kind of imagine time. It's really hard to picture this, but people living in the ancient regime would not think of time as this linear unfolding of things. For instance, if they thought about the crucifixion, the day of the crucifixion, they would think, you know, let your minds try to get around this, they would think last Friday, um, Good Friday 2019, is actually closer to the original day of the crucifixion than just some ordinary day in, this, in summer 2015. That because this was a holy, sacred day, it was closer to other holy, sacred days. So think about how the imagination of ministry would be completely different in this context. And in many ways, what you're doing if you are the pastor in this context is you're preparing people to participate in the holy days, um, to, 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 to prepare themselves for the holy days and then take them into these holy days. We tend not to think that way at all. We are all kind of captivated by the linear unfolding of time. So you see how even expressions, even, even the kind of expressions we might do on Good Friday and what that might mean to us live inside conditions of time being very different. Not like there's this immediate, almost like a wormhole within their imagination that you, when you step inside the cathedral on Good Friday, you're pulled back to the holy moment of the original crucifixion in some sense, that it has that kind of sense of it. There was a big uh, Lutheran kind of faith formation program and I think this is a good practice. But they said what you should do when, you're, when your kid turns like 15 is you should give them a watch. And then that watch and tell them and pray for them and say, you know, this watch is to remind you that, uh, that your time is God's time. And God is watching you and that, you're, that your life is, is done before God. And it's kind of a beautiful practice. But I'm kind of a curmudgeon and suspicious and I doubt it can work. And part of the reason I doubt it can work is because our first kind of unthought imagination is to think about linear time. And it becomes really hard for us to think in a kind of different perspective. So time becomes a different form. 
And then um, we won't talk much about this speeds thing. We can, we can get at that later if you want to get at it. But what's really important for us is that things themselves become charged with meaning. That things themselves have um, holy power. So how do you do, if you would even have any kind of imagination for this, how would you do youth ministry in 1480? Just get people, just get them to the relics. I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple in many ways. Just uh, get them in the relics. I spent a, uh, a few weeks in, in Paris uh, last fall, and uh, you go to all of these incredible, beautiful, I, well, when, when Notre Dame went up in, in, in flames, I'm going to show you a video clip tomorrow of, 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 not of that, but of people talking about it. But I could barely even watch it because it made me so sick because uh, we spent so many hours walking around Notre Dame and the other beautiful um, cathedrals and, and church buildings there. But what you realize pretty quickly is whether you go into Chantchapelle um, or you go into Notre Dame, that all these incredible buildings are there. Not to be incredible buildings. That's a very modern imagination. They're there to house a holy thing. Chantchapelle, if you've ever walked inside of it, it's like you're standing inside um, a lantern. It's just stained glass and stained glass. St. Louis built it and St. Louis built it because for one reason. He received Jesus' crown of thorns. So you build a beautiful building not because this will be functionally useful for people. This will bring us together. The celebrities will get married here. You don't build buildings for that reason in the ancient regime. You build buildings to house holy sacred things. And of course now those crown of thorns were at Notre Dame and they almost burnt up, and they were, they were saved. Or you go to Chartres, beautiful, beautiful Chartres. Why Chartres built? Incredible cathedral, built for one purpose. Mary's cloak, they've got it. They've got a piece of it now still up at the back of, um, of, of the, of the uh, cathedral, and you can go downstairs and you can see the other half of it. The things themselves are charged with meaning. It's really hard for us to get our minds even around that. However, we're never, like I said, as modern as we think we are. Remember what happened three Super Bowls ago when it was played in Dallas? Remember the huge issue after the Super Bowl? This was the Super Bowl, I believe, where Tom Brady led them back, led the Patriots back in the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. Is anyone from Boston here? Good, we hate people from Boston. <laughs> we only hate you because you win at everything. Um, but uh, they, they had the Super Bowl, remember? And then what happened, the, the news release went out. Um, police going crazy because someone had snuck into the locker room and taken Tom Brady's game-used jersey and stolen it. And so they got, like, the Texas Rangers out to try to recover <laughs> this thing. And, what, of course, what's really fascinating is that they didn't just steal a jersey. It wouldn't have been the same thing if they would have stole a jersey that was used in case he ripped his other one, like a non-game-used jersey. It's the game-used jersey that he sweated in, that he used to do these, these incredible things that we want. So we're never, we're never really as modern as we think we are. We always have these kind of feelings. If you want to read a book about that, there's a guy by the last name is Bloom um, who wrote a book. Uh, I can't remember. What's the title of it? I can't remember. But he's written a book about how He's a psychologist at Yale, and he's written a book about how we actually are drawn to things like we want stuff with their essence in it. So if we know like a celebrity has, has uh, remember that episode of Seinfeld where, where Kramer or Jerry thought they got um, Voight's car, and they found a pencil with his teeth marks in it, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is Voight's teeth marks. Um, so we're never really quite as modern as we think we are. Um, but for the most part, we don't do this. We, don't, we surely don't build our ministries around just getting kids to holy relics. And we, we are all kind of birthed out of 
traditions that saw how getting people to holy relics could become incredibly corrupt uh, and oppressive um, and, and revolted uh, against some of that. All right, last point here is that in this perspective then, in the ancient regime, that the, that the self is very porous. And we've already kind of alluded towards this, this idea that um, things can actually get inside the self. That there isn't, is what will occur here, a buffer between the self, but the self is very porous. And like I said with my daughter, we tend to imagine that there's a buffer between the, the inner essence of the self. So when my daughter's acting up, I don't think a demon has gotten to her. I think she's tired. She didn't get enough sleep. Um, there's always some kind of natural material answer for this. It's a chemical issue. And we say this all the time. Like if you wake up tomorrow and you're just feeling like angry at everyone and you're just annoyed and you just don't have patience for anyone, usually your response will be, I'm just sorry, I, don't know, I haven't had my coffee yet. So there's a buffer, actually. Who you are at the core of your being hasn't been taken over by an angry, evil force. You're just having a bad morning. You haven't had your caffeine yet. That will regulate you. So there's this actual buffer between the self. The best example to maybe illustrate this is the classic Snickers commercial. Remember the classic Snickers commercial? All right, so you get it. You're not you when you're hungry. Um, Yeah, you may not be you, but it's just that you're hungry. See, there's a buffer, a buffer that doesn't get to the essence of who you are. You're not ever possessed by some outside force. There's just something off. It's not really you. It's your chemical disposition that needs to be re-regulated in some way. If you watch, I I give you all my examples from TV. That's my number one research area. Um, But if you watch PBS's Victoria, remember, I think it was season one or season two, when she was pregnant, Remember she got advice from her council? Now, this is Victorian England, you know, so this is not that long ago. Um, and she was pregnant, and they said she wanted to go to the zoo. And they said, you can't, you can't go to the zoo. Because as a pregnant woman, if you go to the zoo and see an elephant, it's very possible your baby will have big ears. <laughs> and my colleague Amy Marga, she's done all this research on mothering um, from a feminist perspective. And so she's, she's looked at all this history. And there's just crazy stuff that people really thought was true. Like if a woman who was pregnant saw someone on the streets who was drunk, it's very possible her, ba- her, her baby would end up drunk. If you were scared by a mouse, the baby would come out with mouse-like figures. So you just see, I mean, we just kind of laugh at that now, but there's this deep sense that there's a porous reality um, that, that can impact you. So we are far, far from these perspectives in some ways. I mean, they, they hang on in a certain sense. But this is what it would mean then to live in the ancient regime. So this is total, total um, Lord of the Rings. We are uh, one minute to 11 o'clock, and I'm going to pull the curtain on this, and you're like, wait, we just started. You're right. So you have to come back tomorrow. But with our one minute, any questions that you have lingering just about the ancient regime? We're going to move much more quickly tomorrow and, and start to flesh this stuff out. You can see that um, I just want you to take away from here faith formation in this ancient regime, the expressions and the conditions are really linked. If you don't do this, if you don't pray, what will happen to your being? If, uh, if you want to understand yourself even living in this city, it means to do these things. You didn't really have to do faith formation. The whole society um, formed faith. And that could be corrupt. That could be oppressive in certain ways. But um, faith formation was passed on pretty pretty easily um, and sometimes oppressively. But what we're going to see as the story goes is the next move to the next age, this cracks. 
and these things start on a journey of pulling um, apart.